This is Lewis Lapham for Lapham's Quarterly, and this is the World in Time. Lead support for the World in Time podcast has been provided by Lizette Prince through the EJMP Fund for Philanthropy. Speaking today with Corey Stamper, self-styled harmless drudge and author of the new book, Word by Word, The Secret Life of Dictionaries. Corey, you write about your life and times compiling definitions for the Merriam-Webster dictionaries, and every chapter of the book comes complete with your long-abiding love for what you call this gorgeous, lascivious language, commonly known as English. It's a truly wonderful book, inspiriting and by no means harmless. Maybe you can begin at the beginning with what it is you do all day, who and what is a lexicographer, and how do we know one when we see one? (laughs) I'd be happy to start at the beginning. My day is pretty normal. I, like many people, start with email, check and see what's come in overnight, and then we deviate from the norm. When we're working on a dictionary, the next thing I do is I will set all things aside. I turn off the email. I turn off any kind of electronic notifications. I pull up what we call a defining batch. That's usually a set of words that we need to revise the definitions for or create definitions for. And and then I also pull up our database of evidence that supports or would not support, in some cases, a new entry. And I read and read and read and read. And then if I run across a new meaning that merits inclusion, then I pull out, uh, I still use a steno pad because I'm still old school. I grab my steno pad and my mechanical pencil and I start writing out a dictionary definition. So as, as you can guess from that litany of what my day looks like, a lexicographer is a person who writes and edits dictionaries for a living. And I work specifically as a definer. So my job is to write and edit definitions in dictionaries. Lexicographers are becoming a rarefied breed and a, and a, and a uh, endangered species. They're not that many of you left. Is that true? (laughs) That is absolutely true. Um, Just like all of publishing, uh, reference publishing has also gone through a major contraction. And I joke in the book that language is a growth industry, but dictionaries are not. So I would guess that at this point in time, there are probably 50, perhaps, full-time lexicographers in the U.S. How did you get into this business. I mean, how old are you? And, and what do you mean? You use the word sprock gefool. And what does that mean? <laughs> so I, I've been doing this for 20 years. I am 42, and I'm happy to let everybody know that that is actually my age. I got into this kind of by accident. I graduated from college with a degree in medieval studies and I focused on language and literature. So when I graduated from college, I had facility with Old English and Middle English and Old Norse and Latin and Greek, you know, which is not particularly viable in today's industry. So 
I happened to have a job where I was doing I was doing development work. I was in finance, and it did not suit me. Numbers and I don't get along terribly well. And so I started looking through want ads in the paper, and I happened to answer a want ad for an editorial assistant at Merriam-Webster. And I interviewed, and as soon as I began the job, I was immediately put into the defining track. And it was sort of as if the whole world opened up for me. I realized, oh, this is, this is what you do when you're a person like me. And what do you mean by the defining track? I mean, you talk about... You say lexicographers don't do real defining, like is, what is truth and what is love. They do lexical defining. What, what is lexical defining? Lexical defining is where you look at how a word is used in context, and you come up with a definition based on its contextual use. So the thing I like to say is real defining is what theologians and philosophers do. They ask what is beauty? What is love? And what lexicographers do is we say, how is the word beauty used in this particular sentence? Or what does the word love mean in the sentence, I love pizza? And how is that different from the way love is used in the sentence, I love my spouse? So that's what lexical defining is. And that sounds like hair splitting to a lot of people, but it's actually sort of the philosophical basis for all lexicography. How does that connect with the distinction you make between prescriptivism and descriptivism? So, a quick little definition for uh, your listeners. Prescriptivism and descriptivism are two approaches to language. Prescriptivists prescribe the best practices of English, so they set boundaries around the, what they consider to be good or right. And descriptivism is an approach to language that says all language use is valid. Now, dictionaries tend to be more descriptive. And so what this means is if a word is in use and it's in significant use, it's eligible for entry into a dictionary, even if that word is generally considered to be a terrible word. Prescriptivists would say, that shouldn't be included in the dictionary. It's not part of the best practices of English. But we've found, as we look at the evidence, that the best practices of English have changed dramatically over the last few hundred years. So dictionaries tend to be much more descriptive. You call the English language a wild, vibrant whore of a language. I mean, it is <laughs> constantly borrowing from other languages, taking meanings from all over the place. I mean, what what when you're looking for the usage, I mean, what do you read? Do you read old books or do you read newspapers? Uh, we pretty much read anything with print. Uh, so historically, that's been things like books, newspapers, magazines, trade journals. And as we've moved online, as all media has moved online, actually, that's been broadened. So in addition to standard print publications, books and magazines, we're also reading online magazines. We're reading blogs. We will even read social media to find new uses of words. If it has print on it or if print's involved at all, we read it. It's eligible for being sort of slurped into our citations file, which is what houses all of our evidence for all of the dictionary entries that are in all of our dictionaries. So what, is your, what are your three criteria for entry? 
The three criteria, the first one is meaningful use. So a dictionary only can define words that have meanings, which sounds ridiculous. You think most words have meanings, but sometimes you do run across nonsense words or words that are used as examples of long words, and those don't actually have a lexical definition. I can't grab onto a definition from the sentence, anti-disestablishmentarianism is a long word. That doesn't tell me what anti-disestablishmentarianism means. So meaningful use. Then a word needs to have widespread use. So we're looking not just for widespread geographical use, that's very important, but also widespread tonal use. If something's only used in very formal writing, it's less likely to get into a general dictionary like our uh, collegiate dictionary. And if it's used in very informal writing, it's the same thing. You want to see a big spread of tone and register in the kinds of places that a word is used. And then the third criterion is sustained use. The word needs to have a shelf life because words come into the language and then they drop out of the language. So you want to make sure before a word is entered into a dictionary that it's actually fully entered the language. But the search for meaning and definition can take a long time and be very difficult. More, I mean, for example, how long did it take to draft a definition of the word God? <laughs> I had to revise the entry for God. So there was already a definition there. I wasn't even starting from scratch. And that took me four months. <laughs> and how, how far <laughs> back did you have to go in your sources? <laughs> well... I, I started with our database in-house, which uh, actually holds things, you know, it, it's sort of all of the things we've collected since the 70s, but that doesn't mean it just goes back to the 70s. It will have things from the 50s and 60s and 40s. Uh, so I started with that, uh, broadened it out to the mid-1800s, uh, just so I could have some sense of what's current. Uh, I think all told, I went through about 30,000 citations for the word God. Do you remember what meaning, you, the definition you came up with? Oh, heavens no. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I, I've just put that right out of my mind. <laughs> all right. I mean, the, the, but it's the short words that usually require the most work. I mean, I, I think you mentioned the word take. Yes. The shorter the word, generally, the more difficult it is to define. Because lots of these short words, take is a great example, uh, but is another example, they get used so much. They're just a core part of the language. So you have more evidence to sort through. Uh, they also tend to have multiple meanings that are very, very similar, or they have forms like but that you could you could split it either way. You could say this, eh, this could be a conjunction, or this could be a preposition, or this could be an adverb. And so the more that you deal with with these short words, the more sort of into the muck of English you're getting. You're really getting down into the micro level of English. When do we start? I mean, in the history of, of trying to f form something called the English language, I think you you say that the, we begin to do that in the, what, 15th century? 
Well, you know, English itself has its roots in Old English, which goes back to about the 6th century. But really starting in about the 16th century, the 1500s, there's a push to sort of rein English in. English at this point has become a global language. Through the age of exploration, we are now borrowing in a ton of words from all over the place. There's a big boom in scientific discovery, and so we're creating new words for that. And really starting around then, there are grammarians who begin to panic that English is becoming so large and unwieldy that it's not actually going to be able to be learned by anybody. So... English as a language has been around for quite a while, but the idea of proper English really is a fairly recent invention, considering that, you know, English is about 1,500 years old. What, what is proper English? I mean, somebody who uses proper English defines himself or herself as a lady or a gentleman? <laughs> Basically, proper English now, as we consider it, is what we would call, what linguists would call standard formal written English. So proper English is essentially a written standard. And the reason that it's a written standard is because when proper English was starting to be developed, when these grammarians started panicking about what English is, there was also at the same time a huge boom in literacy from the lower and middle classes. And one of the things that happened was that upper class and higher middle class teachers, writers, would write letter writing guides for people who needed to communicate with upper class people who had more education. So really, from the very beginnings, the idea of right and wrong English is based on letter writing. So standard English now is a formal written dialect, and we also learn to speak it, but its rules are primarily written. Words or meanings and definitions are also subject to changes in the spirit of the age or to political questions. So you sometimes run across uh, contentions. For example, try and talk about your experience with the word nude or the word marriage. <laughs> yes. So the word marriage is is a very I mean it's a very interesting story. In 2003, we added a sense a definition to the entry for marriage that covers same-sex marriage. And the reason we did that was because we had plenty of written evidence that it was used with that meaning. However, there were lots of people who heard about that some years later and felt that actually we were making a cultural and political statement as opposed to just tracking where the language goes. And so people responded in kind. Uh, they were furious. This is not, you know, you shouldn't be setting the culture. You should you say that you follow the culture. Well, you shouldn't be out ahead of it. In a similar way, when we had to revise the entry for nude, the way that that came about was we actually were watching or we were sub the subject of a viral video in which women of color were trying on garments that were called nude, that were the color nude. And of course, the fashion industry up until, you know, the last 10 years probably, nude was beige, it was pale tan, it was 
sort of oriented for white skin. And this is something that women of color and people of color have known forever. But in the last 10 years, the fashion industry has started making uh, garments and shoes and makeup palettes for people of color and calling them nude. So when this viral video came to light, it pointed out that our definition, which was, was very much out of date, situated that color in a way that it referred to white skin only. And so, you know, we did, unlike what we did with marriage, where we said, no, this is where the language has gone. And this isn't a cultural or political statement. It's merely recording what's already there. Nude was sort of the opposite of that. We said, oh, is this where the language is going? We haven't seen that. So we actually went on kind of a hunt to find new and more updated sources for the word nude. And it turns out that we did in fact find lots of very recent evidence for nude used of a huge range of colors. So in that instance, we did revise the definition. But both of those were based entirely on where the language was going and where the language had gone. But because of the nature of, of each topic, it seemed very political to people. But dictionaries try not to play politics. That's just a losing game. Can you remember what the definition for nude was that you finally came up with? I believe that we said it was a, let me think. I believe it was having a color such as pale beige or tan. So that such as tells you it's a range that matches the wearer's skin tones. And then we included some examples like nude pantyhose and nude lipstick, which indicates also that nude is used of things besides uh, just pantyhose or garments. I think that's what we ended up coming to. But, you know, it took us a few rounds of going back and forth. And it was very, you know, we were focused very much on individual words. So, for instance, I think a previous version had said matching a person's skin tone. And then my supervisor, who is our director of defining, came back and said, no, let's say the wearers, because it indicates that this is mostly things that are worn. So that was the final revision. But it, it wasn't an immediate thing. Again, you sort of deal with these things at the word by word level. Do you have any, among all the definitions that you have compiled, edited, and, and composed, do you have any particular favorite that sticks in your mind? <laughs> Actually, one of the very first ones that I had to work on, this was a definition that was for, we put in the addenda to our unabridged dictionary, and this, which was actually the very first defining project I worked on. And the definition that I remember spending a huge amount of time on was the definition for the verb mosh. And moshing is uh, something that happens at concerts at the front of the stage. It looks like people smashing into each other. And so I had to come up with a definition for that. It's, and the definition I came up with, I'm very proud of, was to engage in uninhibited, often frenzied activities, such as intentional collision, with others near the stage at a rock concert. <laughs> I remember being very proud of, you know, laying that all out, that it was not, it was intentional collision, but frenzied activity, so planned, but there's, a, there's an element of surprise to it. 
that I, it's still one of my favorite definitions. Do you have any favorite words? Oh, I have so many favorite words. <laughs> Give us, I'm told that Shakespeare's favorite word was peep. But peep. Peep. P-E-E-P. I like that. Tell me what your favorite words are. The one that I, I love only because um, the fact that it exists at all is amazing to me. It is the word Gardy Lou, G-A-R-D-Y-L-O-O. And it's an interjection. And the definition is something along the lines of used in Edinburgh when it was customary to throw slops out the upper stories of windows as a warning cry. So so it was a way of warning people that you were going to throw wastewater out your windows. And it's from the French, we think, gardele, which means watch out for the water. I love that this I love that there's enough written evidence of this word that it has made it into a dictionary. I just think that's wonderful and an example of what English is. Last or almost last question, uh, uh, Corey, is I, as a longtime editor of Harper's Magazine, had to uh, assemble a album of writing in Harper's Magazine over the last 150 years when it had its 150th anniversary in 2000. And I was struck by the loss of vocabulary. I mean, you know, since... Let's say 1960. I, re- reading reading authors in the 20s and 30s, even the 40s, they they use all kinds of words. They're not and they're not trying to be pretentious or literary. They they just have them at their disposal. So from my point of view, it seems to be that the vocabulary is shrinking. But from your point of view, if I hear you correctly. The magazine, uh, the language is growing at, uh, you know, like Topsy. <laughs> it is. It is growing like Topsy. I think there is a perception that there is a loss of language whenever there's a change in the idiom used by journalists, reporters, writers. I mean, this is a complaint we actually hear a lot that, you know, since Shakespeare, everything's just gone downhill. And I mean, if you sort of look at the number of words that have come into the language, even in the last 50 years, it's very hard to say, oh, yeah, you're right. (laughs) Language is falling apart. But I think one thing that's interesting is, again, just as English is a living and breathing language, the idioms and the conventions we use as writers has also changed. I mean, I know I've had some people approach me about my book and say, I love it because it's so accessible and it's just, it looks, you know, I'm a regular person and I can read it. And I've had other people come to me and say, you know, your voc- I would expect a better vocabulary from someone who's a lexicographer. So it's really just our perception and our assumptions about what the convention for writing is. Um, I mean, there's still beautiful and serious writing happening. And and there's still lots and lots of complicated, complex, gorgeous words that are coming into the language. So in that sense, you know, I really don't, I, I'm very optimistic, which is very much against my nature, <laughs> about the state of English. Well, I'm just delighted to talk to you. I mean, I'm, it's a delight to read your book because I also have a long and abiding love for English. And so thank you for writing the book and thank you for 
speaking with us today. Thank you so much, Lewis. That's Corey Stamper, the author of Word by Word, The Secret Life of Dictionaries, and a rare pleasure to read. Lapham's Quarterly brings voices from the past up to the microphone of the present. Save more than 30% off the cover price and subscribe today for only $49. Visit laphamsquarterly.org slash podcast for more details. Mm-hmm.